This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you for joining us for another podcast edition and giving us 30 minutes of your precious time to listen. Today, we will discuss the politics of the U.S. Senate with longtime congressional reporter from the Washington Post, Paul Kane. How are you, Paul? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, Jerry, great to hear from you again. Great to talk to you. Yes. You know, you and I, I covered Congress a little bit and you were there and we covered it together for a little while. Um, and the thing we have in common is we are Philadelphia sports teams fans because you grew up just outside of Philly in the Northwest area. And um, so um, it was funny. I was up there staying one time with a farmer and uh, I walked in with a Phillies jersey, jersey and the farmer looked at me and said, you know, suffering. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I know suffering. And that's the one thing that we, uh, oh, we yeah. have. <laughs> so let's yeah. get to it. Uh, the Democratic win in the U.S. Senate. I think a lot of people thought, wow, you know, the Democrats got control of the Senate and Biden's going to get everything he wants, but you and I know it doesn't work that way with the 60 vote filibuster. Explain those rules to me and why the Democrats don't have carte blanche in the Senate right now. Sure. Um, you know, this has been, you know, the, the Hollywood version of the filibuster is Mr. Smith goes to Washington and he's there, you know, staging this marathon long speech trying to get, um, you know, a, a Boy Scout type uh, thing built. Um, you know, the modern Senate doesn't – just doesn't work that way. The, the quote-unquote filibuster is just a uh, sort of courtesy given to any senator who says, nah, you know, I object on ending debate here. And that means that you've got to get 60 votes to end debate on something. And, um, you know, last decade, Harry Reid, then the majority leader and minority leader Mitch McConnell – had some epic fights over this, and it was mostly focused on nominees, Obama administration nominees. Right. And eventually, Harry Reid did this thing of a part, purely partisan maneuver that changed the rules of the Senate just on a party line vote, um, as opposed to the tradition uh, that would have required a two thirds supermajority to change rules. Um, he did that, and uh, then Mitch McConnell responded in kind once they were in the majority and further uh, went to, quote-unquote, nuclear. And they've really – what they've done, though, is they've left this sort of in two different worlds. There's the Senate side that deals with presidential nominations, and those things happen on a simple majority vote. But legislation is still protected um, or hindered, depending on where you come from, uh, by the 60-vote hurdle. And – that means that, you know, there's a Senate right now that has Chuck Schumer has 50 members in his caucus. Mitch McConnell has 50 in his. Kamala Harris is vice president. She breaks the tie and you've got, you know, 51-50. They control the majority, but it doesn't mean that they control the agenda. And, um, That's a good way of putting it. You know, yeah. they, 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 can, they, they, they control the schedule, sure, but they just don't have full control to implement the things that they want to do. So that leaves them in, in sort of two choices. Um, one is to try to blow up the filibuster again, to blow up the legislative filibuster. Uh, and they just don't have the votes to do that right now. 
you right. know, publicly, two of the more conservative Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, have said no, they're not going to blow up the filibuster. That they believe that is what makes the Senate the Senate. Right. They have no intention of doing so. Right. Um, I, the reality is there are probably another six, seven, eight uh, Democrats that are a little bit queasy about doing this, and they're happy to have Manchin and Cinema out there taking that public position. <laughs> um, taking it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, you know, the other thing that they have going for them is, you know, something that came from the 1974 budget law that allows them on spending measures to create something that's called budget reconciliation. It's mm-hmm. this, you know, you sort of you get one shot a year to pass a budget and you can do it with these special instructions that will get around the 60 vote hurdle and you get this sort of once a year chance to put a bunch of stuff into a bill um, that will that will they can that can pass on just 51 votes. And so that's what Senate House and Senate Democrats are working on now is putting together this budget resolution that mm-hmm. will uh, eventually contain the Biden proposal on COVID relief, which currently comes in at $1.9 trillion. That right. is a big amount of money. Sure, sure. So. And now in, in terms of that legislation, if it gets to the Senate, then they can pass it, but they got to get through the House and what the rigor mall is over there. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. Right, they they right. have they, the House has passed. They have to pass a resolution right. in each the exact same resolution in each chamber, um, and then that only is like the framework. That's just like, hey, we know what we want to do. Then the there are instructions that each of these different committees has to go sit down and write legislation to just fill in the entire. Uh, you know, the entire legislative package, and then they have to vote on that. And right. so we're looking at like mid-March is the, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the timeline for how they get this thing done. Yeah. Um, and that, that's if everything goes well. Right. Yeah. When Warnock won and everybody was jumping around, I was sitting there saying, well, uh, there's a little bit more complicated here. What do you think? I mean, we've already seen, you know, the Republicans had voted against having an impeachment trial. So we've seen how they can do that. Uh, How difficult is it going to be for Biden to get his legislation passed in this administration? It's going to be hard. You know, Jerry, it's they're 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 going to run into problems. They, they, things like, you know, COVID pandemic relief, they're going to be able to do through these uh, special budget resolution measures. Later this year, they're going to try and do another budget resolution um, for the next fiscal year. And that is going to supposedly include things like infrastructure spending mm-hmm. um, and, and, and stuff that is more long-time democratic goals that they have not been able to do since the early days of Obama. Um, And, you know, they can do that. But then, you know, there's a whole set of other legislative goals that have been sitting there collecting dust um, Uh because of the Republican majorities for most of the last decade. Mm -hmm. Things that have to 
get Republican support or else they're not going to become law. And that's right. immigration, mm-hmm. immigration laws, um, voting rights laws. There's, healthcare. You know, uh, you know healthcare. They right. can, they, there's a possibility that you can tinker with some of the taxes and formulas on, on healthcare um, and through reconciliation. But, you know, but can they do a, a, a big, bold public option that they had talked about um, that, that, that's not that, that's a dicey situation I don't know if they can do that uh, yeah. on reconciliation so the the biggest pieces of the agenda um, that are real laws not just spending money uh, at this point require 60 votes mm-hmm. um, and I don't know you know where they're going to get those 10 Republicans um, I mean, geez, you know, there's the gun legislation mm-hmm. um, for expanded background checks that right. has been sitting there, you know, Mansion Toomey. Yeah, I was, I was, I was there when they were doing that. Was yeah. that was the 13th, so it was, it was since the since the um, Sandy Hook shooting. Yeah, that that mm-hmm. came up right after Sandy Hook, and um, eight years ago they started on it, and it's a, a, a proposal that has 90 percent approval. Mm-hmm. Public ninety percent of the public, the overwhelming majority of members of the NRA, support expanding background checks. Right, right. And right. that bill got stalled in a filibuster. Yeah. yeah. And that was when they had fifty-five Senate Democrats. That's right. That's right. There were That's fifty-five right. Senate Democrats at that time, and they couldn't overcome a filibuster. So you know, now in twenty twenty-one, they have fifty. Um, you know, I don't think they're going to get 10 Republicans for that. Right, right. So you did an interesting column right after uh, Biden was elected, and you were talking about uh, Biden being a senator and how that, and a lot of people saying, well, he was a senator, he knows how to negotiate. But you mentioned something that was very important, and that is only one-third of the Senate served with Biden, one-third of the current Senate served with Biden. And then people say, well, Harris was a senator. Well, she's only been a senator for four years. So um, how difficult is it going to be for him to negotiate with these? And now he's trying to negotiate with the Republicans now. Uh, and he says, this, these are not your father's Republicans. <laughs> uh, they, uh, I mean, it's it's not the old ways. I mean, do, do you think he's going to be able to be the, you know, the calm negotiator and, and work these things through? <sighs> you know, I think there's the, the, there's the optimistic uh, outwardly public Joe Biden right. um, on everything. Um, and then, you know, there's the also, you know, publicly man who's dealt with incredible pain and personal tragedy in his own uh, family's life. Right. Um, I, he, knows, he, he knows the cold, hard reality of life, um, mm-hmm. you know, better than most. And I mm-hmm. think he knows that the Senate of today is not what it was when he was there. Right. Um, heck, it wasn't the Senate of today isn't even the Senate of 10 years ago when right. he was the vice president who had a decent relationship with uh, Mitch McConnell. Right. You know, they, they could cut the occasional deal. Um, right. He's aware and yeah. I think what he wants to do most importantly is, you know, establish the, the, the common 
you know, the public support for right. things is right. as important. Having, you know, a broad cross section of the public supporting what he's doing, right? His mindset is pretty close to bipartisanship, right? And, right. You know, if they if they get sixty five percent approval for some piece of legislation, and you know they get zero Republicans voting for it. Yeah, you know, in in a lot of ways, I think they're going to take that as bipartisanship. Right. Um, so, I, I it it remains to be seen whether there's much, you know, whether there's real bandwidth among Republicans uh, to, to work really want to yeah. work with them. Yeah. So it was interesting. I was talking to a, a very um, um, supportive Democrat this morning and uh, she was basically telling me, look, um, he, and she was upset because she thought he was going too soft with these negotiations. And I, I was basically saying, look, he's going to deal with these guys very lightly in the beginning. And if he sees that they're not going to negotiate, he, like you said, he's been around. He's smart enough to know. And, you know, he's got that so-called bully pulpit, but Joe Biden's not a bully. So that's the, I guess that's the question and the worry of some of the Democrats out there is that he's, he's not going to be forceful in dealing with these Republicans. I, you know, I think it's, um, you know, underestimate him at your own peril. Right. Uh, a whole lot of Democrats this time two years ago, very much underestimated Joe Biden um, right. and thought that he would be, a terrible presidential candidate right. um, and wouldn't come, you know, it, it, there was, a, there were a lot of comparisons of him to Jeb Bush mm. um, or Rudy Giuliani. Right. Um, or, or Joe Lieberman in the 2004 campaign. Right. You know, it was all name ID. That's why he's leading. Well, you know, it turned out that there was a deeper reservoir of uh, goodwill toward him among the Democrats than, than a lot of people realized. Now, you know, he he has wanted to be president since since 1972 when he ran for Senate for, right. for Senate when he was 29 years old. Right. Um, he has wanted this job longer than any person who has ever <laughs> gotten the job. You know, I mean. He was uh, he took the oath of office in the, for the Senate at a time when Barack Obama was just getting to middle school. Oh, geez. Wow. You know, yeah, that's a good way to put that. That puts so, it in perspective. <laughs> I, I don't think he wants to just sit there in the Oval Office and be like, Ooh, all right, I'm here. Right. You know, he's wanted to do this for a really long time. So he wants to get stuff done. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, you know, if they completely block everything, you know, the, the idea that Joe Biden will uh, just sit back and say, oh, the filibuster is the greatest thing ever. I'm willing to let, you know, the country go to hell uh, just to protect the filibuster. I think it's a little naive. I think, yeah. you know, he yeah. and Joe Manchin might move together on this depending on uh on where, where they you know where republicans yeah. go yeah and it's interesting because you know i hear from republicans and how much they don't like biden and it's going to be socialism and these kind of things but i can't think of anybody there who has more knowledge of how the government works 
and has been there longer than Joe Biden. So he knows how the machine works. You went to the University of Delaware. You are a blue hen. You have a blue hen shirt on and a blue hen hat on today. Uh, have you been following him um, for a long time since you were in the state where he came from? I, as a undergrad student, um, I, I remember, I don't know if it was 1990 or God, I shouldn't even say this. I'm exposing my age here. Um, yeah, I, I remember he visited campus um, back when uh, he would have been chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And I right. remember, you know, did a discussion with students. I remember asking him about uh, gun laws back then. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to Washington 25 years ago. And uh, by, you know, 2000, I was covering the Senate for a roll call and, you know, spent the next eight years pretty closely uh, reporting on Senator Biden and, uh, and a lot of the U.S. Senate. And yeah, we, you know, once he found out that I was a fellow blue hen, there was, you know, lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of that's gossip good. about that's the, right. uh, about the right. football team. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a Joe, Joe Biden is what one of my friends called friends with the flies. I mean, he, he just connects with a lot of people that he meets and he remembers you and he'll call you when you're down. And uh, there was a, you know, you remember in 88 when he got accused of plagiarizing his own memoir. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Lee Iacocca had the top book, the old uh, Chrysler chairman. And my yeah. friend, my friend had come to me and said, Hey, you know, Biden's got a new book out. It's called Iacocca. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of Mitch McConnell, now he, he's an interesting guy because I think when I covered him and you mentioned Harry Reid being the Democratic leader, Mitch McConnell seemed to be a reasonable guy. He seemed to be a guy you could talk with and work things out with. Um, and but, you know, he was his support of Trump kind of threw me um, because he was such a solid uh, person in Trump's corner. Was that political necessity? Was he trying to save his own seat? What do you think that was that he did that for? Um, I think to some degree it was political necessity. Um, to another degree, it was um, outcome driven. Um, and let me let me explain both there. Uh, McConnell, people forget this about Mitch McConnell, but um, you know, seven years ago at this point, early 2014. Mitch McConnell was not the mythical, powerful figure that he is now. Yeah. He was he was heading into his eighth year in the minority as right. minority leader. Mm -hmm. um, he had just been through a couple of election cycles where these renegade conservatives, guys like Ted Cruz mm -hmm. and Rand Paul, mm -hmm. trounced establishment figures mm -hmm. and came to the Senate and some other renegades trounced establishment figures and ended up blowing really, really winnable races. Right. And McConnell was heading into his own primary, uh, a primary challenge uh, from a really wealthy businessman. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, why is he not is so unsuccessful? And what he did that cycle was he just said, it is, is a win at all costs. We have to defeat every single one of these uh, you know, these renegades in the primary, we need to get the right candidates on the field. And then we got to watch the six year itch midterm and see how Democrats respond. And, and they did, they won every single primary that they needed to win. 
And then um, McConnell watched as the Democrats splintered and, and flailed, and uh, they didn't know what to do because Obama's approval rating was down in the low 40s. And, you know, a bunch of Democrats kind of distanced themselves from Obama, but not really, but sort of, kind of, verbally, and um, really depressed turnout among the Democratic base. And they picked up, Republicans picked up nine seats. McConnell becomes majority leader. And his advisor said to me after the fact, that was the dumbest thing Democrats could ever do. Your president, yeah. your president is your president. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're with them. You, yeah. you have to be because, mm -hmm. you know, that's the way things are. And McConnell, you know, and once they, once Trump won, I think McConnell pretty much realized that like, for better or worse, they're stuck with this guy right. and they need to make the best of it politically. Now, I, I think the other side of this is he also realized that Trump would be then nominating federal judges, Supreme right. Court nominees, right. and right. it was an area of, uh, of policy that Trump knew absolutely nothing about. And, <laughs> and, and McConnell could completely take advantage of Trump and, and did so. And I, and I guess that's always the question when you're an elected official. Do you represent the people that elected you or do you represent your own opinions and you think, oh, well, I'm against abortion. So, you know, but do you, you have to represent the people that elected you to get there? And is that part of it is like, hey, yeah. this is what the people want and I'm going to do it. Yeah. And, and Mitch McConnell's career inside Kentucky has been an evolution. You know, he, he you know, the Eastern Kentucky coal country um, remained democratic really, really democratic areas, you know, into the last decade. Mm -hmm. And and McConnell campaigned in 2014 uh, and ended up winning by a big margin that looks the same on paper, just when you look at the numbers, mm -hmm. but it's a totally different coalition. Mm -hmm. he, he now has this really white working class coalition mm -hmm. uh, out of Kentucky that that there's rural, it's cold country, mm -hmm. um, and and those are people that are fervent Trump supporters. That's right. So he he has to he has to represent them in some way. Well, the night of the rebellion, the Capitol rebellion, and I'm not calling it a rampage, and it was a rebellion. Uh, McConnell and Graham went on the Senate floor and said, "Oh." Uh, uh, we didn't sign up for this. You know, we didn't say that, you know, right away they dove off the Trump ship and particularly Graham. That was a Houdini move. <laughs> Graham gets up and says, hey, man, I'm not with this. You know, I, and how culpable are those guys in that rampage in that in that that happened because they supported Trump? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there's just lots of layers to all of this. You know, McConnell. um McConnell took him five weeks too long to acknowledge Biden's victory. He he waited and waited until the electoral colleges met all in the state capitals and certified the votes. And you know, in the in the interim from November seventh, when media were able to declare media and independent analysts, it wasn't just like a a media call. It was also Fox right. News. Right. Uh, right November seventh, right. uh, till December fourteenth, McConnell just sort of stayed quiet. 
right. you know, that enabled Trump somewhat. Uh, I'm not sure Trump would have listened. I, I'm, uh, I, I, I kind of think actually he wouldn't have listened at all um, right. if they had forcefully come out on November 8th, 9th and said, you know, the election's <laughs> over. I don't know. Yeah. This isn't Nixon where you walk over to the White House and say, hey, look, President, it's kind of yeah. all over. <laughs> um, so they enabled him somewhat. But beginning December 14th, McConnell clearly said Biden won and he and he didn't, you know, play around with voter fraud and any of that. It was, you know, it was pretty clear. And then as they approached January 6th, he really pushed hard inside his Republican caucus to get people to not play around with this fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a sign of how he is a, a weaker person um, with Trump gone, um, you know, to 13 people bucked him and said, no, we're going to sign on to these protest challenges. Right. So, um, you know, his culpability is, is, you know, nothing quite like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and the two thirds of the house Republicans who even after the insurrection rebellion, um, voted in line with, you know, fantasy land. Um, yeah. so, you know, there's a there's a long game of history in which he'll be judged for how he handled his connections to uh, uh, Trump. But in terms of January 6th, he's certainly less culpable than a lot of other uh, Republicans. What about Graham? You know, Lindsay's Lindsay's culpability is something that like just needs therapy. You know, I don't, geez, I'm just, there's not a whole lot else to say. I mean, he's just, he's all over the map. And like, what did he, what was the line on the, he, after we came back into session in the Senate and he gave his speech and he was like, I'm out or something like, yeah, I'm out. It's over. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, I didn't sign I'm up out. for this. Yeah. yeah but, well, what, but, but he, did, but he's not out. No, he is still out. talking to Trump. He is still advising him. He's still helping give him advice on the impeachment trial. So, you know, like he's just, he's just like crazy. I mean, he what? was telling us stuff in the days after the election about, Hey, he was, he was calling, uh, uh, secretaries of state and election officials. Like it was embarrassing how, how he comported himself. And it was interesting, too, because he stands on the floor and says, somebody give me 10 examples of uh, fraud. Now, give me one. Give me one. And here he was the guy calling. But but you're, you're right about Graham in the sense, and, they, you know, it's a cliche, a chameleon. But here's the guy that was handcuffed to John McCain. I mean, him and McCain were like handcuffed. They, whatever McCain said, he kind of did, you know, and then McCain's gone. But I did see Graham right after Trump got elected. It was interesting what he said. He said, I don't agree with the guy. I don't like the guy, but my people voted for him. And I got I got to stick with my people. And it gets back to that same thing we were talking about, Mitch. There was, you know, this, the, the cynics basically thought that, you know, Graham would only, uh, you know, would only toy around with this Trumpism up until he won his Republican primary last summer. Right. Um, 
And, you know, for better or worse, Graham has proven those cynics wrong. You know, right. yeah. he is still on the Trump train, yeah. um, despite hearing every every now and again saying he's out, he's off the train. He's not. He is still yeah. on the train. Um, you know, and a, a, any weekend now we're going to it's going to happen where we're going to start seeing, you know, delegations of members flying down to Mar-a-Lago for weekends here and there (laughs) for the seminars (laughs) the the convention the conferences but what is graham does does graham have anything to fear i mean he's a pretty he's pretty solid in in his state i mean this is south carolina does he have anything to fear at this point no like he just won re-election against somebody who raised like uh jamie's harrison's final numbers was like 120 million or something wow Wow. And 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 spent it all. And and Graham ended up winning by a pretty similar margin to like his very first race in 2002. So, you know, he 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 withstood an incredible storm and still won comfortably. He's got his own his seat for six years. Like it is just uh, he. He can do what he wants now, but I think what we're learning is like he people become transformed by in politics in in weird moments and weird times. John McCain early on was you know was pretty much kind of a thought of as a conservative, like a conservative mm-hmm. renegade. Like he and right. Phil Phil Graham were buddies, and mm-hmm. um, you know he went through Keating Five, and he went through. Uh, a couple of other things and then that's when he really became like sort of unpredictable renegade and it transformed him um and he became a different person and think lindsey graham has gone through a similar transformation um just in a different direction you know it's interesting and you know john kennedy or some people say he didn't write it, maybe Ted Sorensen, whoever wrote Profiles in Courage. Um, you know, I think the thing that's that's kind of surprising me with, nah, it shouldn't surprise me, but I mean, I think there's just a lack of courage in the Senate. I mean, um, if this impeachment trial, the first one, uh, would have went to a vote, if it was an unanimous vote, Trump would have been convicted and thrown out of office if it was a unanimous vote. Uh, so they, they, they seem fearful of the Trump base instead of doing the right thing, and I just don't see much courage in that chamber anymore i i think it, it and i'm not trying to both sides this one um i i think that the uh, that is just been a complete lack of courage in the senate across the board for at least the last 10 years it that's is, right um you know they're they're democrats uh in the last years of harry reed's uh majority you know, basically shut down the legislative process. You know, right. they were they wouldn't even pass budgets each year, yeah. um, because they were afraid. Like today, it's happening in the Senate. They're they're doing this budget resolution, which under Senate rules means like unlimited amendments, and there's right, right, done dozens, the hundred or so that are yeah. going to be voted on. But Harry Reid didn't want that because his members were they were afraid there'd be tough votes, and 
Yeah. Gosh darn it, if I vote on something, then that, might, <laughs> that might turn into one of those nasty super pack ads. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, well, you saw that. You saw that with the baggage and prior vote against the background check thing. You know, I mean, yeah. they're, in, they're in gun states, so they got to save themselves. But it's kind of interesting what you say. And I, I think that was a good point of yours is that this happens on both sides. I mean, it, you yeah. know, if that if that Supreme Court nominee had come in, as a Republican and the Democrats were in control, they would have held that off too. There ain't no doubt about it. That's, that's politics, you know? Um, and uh, for them to stand up there and be all high and mighty and, you know, this is the way it should be. And, you know, na- our nation once again, or something, you know, you were in the Capitol during that um, rampage. Tell us what that was like. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it was sort of, it, it was nuts. Um, my role early in the day, early in the afternoon was to, uh, be in the Senate for when they, uh, the first challenge was to the Arizona slate of electors. And so, mm. you know, I was in there watching and observing and because reporters still can't have electronics there in, inside the Senate gallery, I had to pop outside and check email, send in a few colorful notes to the congressional pool, letting people know that uh, Pence's brother, Greg, and his wife, Karen, were there watching. And I kept noticing messages from uh, people being like, wow, it's, it's getting kind of crazy there. Is, is everything okay? And, um, you know, it seemed perfectly normal. The, the first real hint that something in the chamber was amiss was when I was watching Pat Leahy as he took his phone out and, and, you know, when you turn it sideways cause you want to really want to watch a video and, and his face, I can still see his face just like popping. Um, and he started passing his phone to uh, Ben Cardin of Maryland and Dick Durbin of Illinois to show them what he had just seen. And um, then I saw they, they pulled Mike Pence out of the chair. He's the president of, as vice president, he's president of the Senate he was overseeing the debate, and I ran out um, yelling to other reporters, they just pulled Pence, they just pulled Pence. Um, and uh, Igor Bobic of Huffington Post was the only other reporter who sort of caught on and jumped up and followed me, and we ran down one flight of stairs to see if we could catch the vice president. You know, I, I thought it might be for security reasons, but I also thought, no, maybe he's just taking a, a pee break. Um and by the time we got down one floor, I could hear the screaming and shouting below. And I heard the sound of a police baton knocking around. And honestly, I, I thought it was the police whacking the the rioters, the terrorists. And uh, instead, it, what I learned later, because Igor then pulled out his phone and hit record and ran downstairs for that, what became a really epic, historic video that was really important for documentary history of uh, Officer Goodman standing there as a bunch of like a couple dozen white domestic terrorists basically, you know, tried to uh, get toward the Senate and he held them back. Um, I didn't have a phone on me. I didn't have a notebook. I had nothing. So I I ran upstairs. Uh, I'm not much of a war correspondent. I'm sorry if I. Uh, <laughs> that. That's exactly uh, what it was, though. You know, I'm I'm sorry that if I didn't display the courage of Igor to run downstairs into the fire, but I ran upstairs and uh, 
I mean, I went up a flight of stairs and before I could do anything, they, the staff, the sergeant at arms staff who, who know me, I've, I'm like, yeah. work. I've, yeah. I've been in the Capitol for 20 straight years. Yeah. They pulled me into the upstairs gallery, the sort of VIP suite where Karen Pence just had been. Right. And I didn't quite know what was happening. And I looked and there on the floor were just a bunch of the Capitol police running around with guns. Yeah. Um, as they were locking down each door of the chamber, and I realized they were going to use the Senate chamber to lock it down and seal it off and use that as a secure location. Right. And there was a guy standing in the middle of the Senate floor with an orange sash over his shoulder that said police and uh, some form of automatic weapon over his other shoulder you know, two feet to his right was Chuck Schumer, two feet to his left was Mitch McConnell. And I just realized that this was like totally something out of out of a, a, a movie, something you'd see in like, you know, The Godfather 2 in the fall of Havana or something. And <laughs> um, uh, at that point, you know, they started yelling things like, get away from the doors, get away from the doors. Amy Klobuchar had uh, at one point said that on her phone stood up and said shots fired. I believe that's actually premature. I don't think the uh, oh, Amy wouldn't do that. I, think the, I don't think the shooting on the house side had happened yet. And then they realized that um, that the Capitol was just going to be completely overrun, and mm. they uh, basically evacuated everybody from who was down on the chamber floor on the second floor of the Capitol, and all the press and staff were up on the third floor and they evacuated us out through uh down um uh, back stairwells and underneath the capitol basement and across the street to um the secure location where um you know it it was it was hairy there was a very Mm -hmm. senior capitol police officer who came in at one point and said that the the whole complex was so overrun that they were preparing to get buses. And I don't know how it was going to work, but they were going to get buses and load everybody on buses and, and get them completely off the congressional campus. That was their fear at that point. So it was quickly clear though, that they didn't need to do that, that they had to, the situation was entirely kept inside the, capital itself and not the office buildings so right now i was surprised in watching it that these marauders were not shot were not gunned down i mean and i'm kind of glad that it didn't happen because that would only escalate things and people would be martyrs and and all that thing but were you surprised at the composure that the capitol police had um in that i think there's two things um at work in that uh in that moment. I think one, you have to remember that we had just gone through a a spring, summer, and fall of police violence, mm-hmm. racial mm-hmm. justice. That's a very good point. And I think there is a, a, a lot of fear uh, among police, you know, appropriate fear of not wanting to fire their weapon at the wrong time. Um, so I think that's in the back of their minds. Second, I think the police, uh, probably rightfully assumed given the background of these 
rioters, where they're from, Trump supporters, white people, very rural. It's a gun-friendly crowd. You know, I, I don't know for certain how many were actually carrying firearms that day, but Mm -hmm. probably a good, good many of them. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as you look at that video of officer Goodman, you know, the lone officer holding back a bunch of, uh, you know, white people carrying the Confederate flag. Hey, you know, he had a gun, but like, what if he shoots one person and then there's five other guys that pull out their weapons at that right, moment. Right. And I think, I think, and then you, you probably know better than I, but I think that they had to be scanned before they went into the Trump uh, rally. So, but the cops wouldn't, the police wouldn't have known that in the Capitol, you know, and you're right. I mean, yeah. they're probably fearing, hey, we're going to get shot back, you know, that kind of thing. And there's one other thing that the police that I, I've heard it from rank and file cops since, and the acting police chief has sort of said in testimony to the Congress, the, the, the clearest explanation of it is they surrendered the building in order to save the people inside the building. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And That's a good way of looking at it. They made the decision of that the, the people inside the building, the senators, the staff, and, and to the press were the most important things. And they, you know, on the House side and the Senate side, they convened like just every police resource they had to make, get them out of the Capitol into safe locations in office, other office buildings. And that meant surrendering the building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were able to save every single inhabitant you know, except for one officer, um, you know, who tragically lost his life and was, you know, laid to rest yesterday in Arlington. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that was another reason why they weren't firing because there was no, that wasn't the plan. Well, I could talk to you for uh, for a couple hours, my friend, and it's really great to yeah. hear from you. And, and you've had a crazy busy couple of months, uh, the election, the Capitol rampage, the inauguration. Now we got the COVID. So I really do appreciate you taking time uh, to come and join us and um, always um, enlightening and always learn something from you. Thanks, buddy. Sure thing, Jerry. We will be back next week with another edition of the Weekly Retail Politics Podcast. Until then... Always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the Front Row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the Front Row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.